the history of the mass. We, how are we going to cover the history of the mass? 2,000 years in one, mm, less than an hour. Um, we'll do our best. I just want to give you guys tonight a sense of the overall, the general history. You don't have to know every detail about every reform, but you should know the basic story of how the mass came to be. Who were the major players in influencing the Mass as we know it, um, and so forth. So we're just going to go through a few things, giving you guys those principles. Hopefully you walk out of here with a sense of the tradition of the Mass, where it came from, and so forth. First of all, the Bible. For those that brought their Bible tonight, open up to Acts chapter 2. Where is the first time in the scriptures that we are, that the mass is revealed to us? That we see, a, in a sense, a glimpse of what would become what we know as the mass? No, not Acts chapter 2. The Last Supper, exactly. And our Lord said what words? Do this in memory of me. And the apostles took that very seriously. And so right at the beginning of Acts... Right at the conversion of the Jews in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, which was a Jewish feast, we get the first uh, hint that something like the Last Supper is taking place again. Okay? In Acts chapter 2, verse... Um, Forty-two. Just start right there. This is after they, uh, the, you know, three thousand converted in one day, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What we would call is what now? Yeah, the word of God, the epistles. Okay, they were they were devoting themselves. Well, they weren't written down at that stage, but devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers the breaking of bread. That phrase, breaking of bread, occurs over and over again in the New Testament in the early church and is rich with meaning. Okay? And it most likely referred to the, to the early liturgy as they came together to share the Eucharist. In Acts chapter 20, we get another little insight into what they're doing. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, what day is the first day of the week? Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, they're meeting together on Sunday. Why would they meet together on Sunday? What's that? Yeah, it's the day of the resurrection. Okay, so on the day of the resurrection, the Lord's day, they came together. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together... Uh, to the breaking to, to break bread, Paul talked with them. Okay, he gave them a sermon. So on Sunday they were gathered together, and it almost appears in the phrasing that you know, as we were gathered together on Sunday, the first day of the week, well, during the breaking of the bread, everybody knew what that was among the Christian community. In 1 Corinthians, we get another reference. Okay, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23. In fact, go back to Acts uh, 11, verse 1. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. First Corinthians. First Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me, this is St. Paul speaking, as I am of Christ. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. He goes on to talk about another point, but he's, he's referencing these things I'm giving to you, I'm not making up on my own. I'm handing them down because I received them from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11. That's verse 1. And look at verse 23. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23-24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see how serious that language is about receiving the body and blood of our Lord in a worthy manner. And notice, he's not just common bread and wine that they're receiving, because what is happening to them? What does he say? You are getting sick and you are dying. It might be talking in a spiritual manner, which is even more serious than a bodily death. Okay, But clearly, this, this... Food which they're receiving is having a significance way beyond what natural food would do to you. Okay? And again, it's understood in the text that they're coming together to do this. This is not a new teaching. It's something common to the early Christians. In the book of Revelation also, we get references which uh, remind us of the liturgy that we're used to. What are some of those references? What are some of the texts that we hear? Some of the prayers that we hear in the book of Revelation? We have to look at them right now. The yeah, the Psalm 2. Holy, holy, holy. That comes into our liturgy. The Beyond you see it. They see the Lamb of God and they worship Him. What else? When John has his revelation, it's on the Lord's day. And the revelation he has with all of these things, he looks into the heavens, and what does he see? An altar with a lamb standing on it. The people surrounding the altar chanting the song tos. Okay, and so on. The breaking open of the scrolls, the book of life. The reading from the book. Okay, all of these references about the early liturgy. About the year 115, we have a text from Pliny the Younger writing to Trajan, the emperor, the pagan emperor. And he's asking the emperor, what should he do with these Christians? What is he supposed to do? And um, what had happened was he had gotten some of the Christians who had apostatized, who had left and who had offered worship um, to the pagan idols. 
and they gave him an account of what was taking place when Christians gathered together. And this is what he says. They assert that this is the whole of their fault or error, that they were accustomed on a certain day to meet together before daybreak. What day would that be? The Lord's Day. And they would meet together before daybreak. Why? Oh, because Jesus rose at dawn. What's that now? Jesus rose at dawn. Rose from the dead. Exactly. The early Christians always prayed facing the rising of the sun. Because as we know from St. Paul, all of creation sings the glory of God. And so creation reminds us of the truths of, of God. They always faced the rising of the sun to be reminded that they were worshiping the risen Lord. Okay. To meet together before daybreak and to sing a hymn alternately to Christ as a God. And they bound themselves by an oath, a sacramentum, not to do any crime, but only not to commit theft, nor robbery, nor adultery, not to break their word, nor to refuse to give up a deposit. When they had done this, it was their custom to depart, but to meet again to eat food. Ordinary and harmless food, however. They say that they, the apostate informers, have stopped doing this, and so on, and so on, and so on. Okay? So they're coming together. They're praying before dawn. Okay? Most likely chanting the Psalms. And they're coming back together later in the day for the breaking of bread. And he says, well, it's common bread, right? It's a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine. You know, looks like bread, tastes like wine, right? So that's his perception of it. Again, one, year 115, it's very early. Initially, the prayers of the, of the liturgy were, were not written down. Okay? It was a tradition handed on of how to pray. Okay? The, the prayers were memorized. They were offered by the leaders of the community. Okay? They didn't have some big missile to open up and look up reference for the day to pray. Okay? And this was handed on. Over time, as you can imagine, as the father of the family offers the prayer every night, when I pray with my wife, pretty much I offer the same prayer every night. Okay, we go through our certain prayers that we do. We have a certain routine. You can imagine how that would be uncustomary. That the apostles, when they were visiting, they prayed a certain way. They may have prayed the Our Fathers, Our Lord taught them. Okay, they prayed according to their memory of the Old Testament. Okay? Their prayers would have been imbued with the Old Testament. In fact, when we're reading the scriptures, oftentimes St. Paul, uh, when he's writing, he's making reference. Our Lord does this also, makes reference to Old Testament texts without ever saying that he's making the reference. Because they knew the texts by heart. They knew them so well that it was part of their everyday speech. And so the prayers, you can imagine, would be just rich with Old Testament imagery. Okay? And probably also memories of how our Lord prayed. Okay, as they reflected back on their days with Him. Certain practical things took place. Of course, when you come together to have food, what do you do beforehand? What your mom always tell you? Go wash your hands. Okay? And of course, you would always add a spiritual significance to anything you were doing in a sacred manner. Okay. The early church, the Jews, they knew the Psalms, they knew the Old Testament by heart, and especially the Psalms. Okay? Let me read you in the from the, the uh, Missal of Pius V, the traditional missal. 
the psalm that was prayed during the washing of the hands. Some of you will remember this from serving at the altar. I will wash my hands among the innocent, and I will go around your altar, O Lord, giving voice to my thanks and recounting all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love, I love the house in which you dwell, the tenting place of your glory. Gather not my soul with those of sinners, nor with men of, of blood my life. On their hands are crimes, and on their right hands are full of bribes. But I walk in integrity. Redeem me and have pity on me. My foot stands on level ground, and assemblies I will bless you, O Lord. And so on. What a beautiful psalm to have with the washing of the hands. Right? I will wash my hands among the innocent. I will go around thy altar, O Lord. Okay? And naturally, these psalms would be, would be tacked onto certain very practical things they had to do. Okay? Similarly, the prayers at the foot of the altar. As you approach the altar, and you know the psalms by heart, you would naturally tack on certain prayers that you knew from your childhood that were appropriate. Okay? What is the prayer at the foot of the altar? Intro, you go out all the time day. You have a tuta ma'am. You have a come in day with Derchnik, how's a ma'am, and so on. Okay, it's in the Latin. Okay. I will go up to thy altar, O Lord, O God who gives joy to my youth, and so on. Okay, these are natural ways to. To make your prayer more solemn, more sacred, taking what you knew from your childhood, the Psalms, and tacking them onto very practical things, approaching the altar, washing of the hands, and so forth. St. Justin the Martyr, writing to the pagan emperor Antoninus around 150, gives us uh, an even more explicit reference to what the Mass was like in the early days. 150, so very early. And remember, when we're reading these texts, it's not as though the men are making them up. These are the things they received. Here, writing 150, this is something that had to have been going on already, maybe, in, in 100. Okay, and if it's going on in 100, it's during the age of the Apostles. Okay, so this is something handed on. St. Justin writes to the emperor, On the day we call the day of the sun, Sunday, all who dwell in the cities or country gather in the same place. The memoirs of the apostles and the writings of the prophets are read as much as time permits. The readings, right? He says as much as time permits because it was the practice that the bishop would be enthroned on the side, okay, and the reader would be re reciting the text, and at a certain point, the bishop had thought he had enough, and he would say, stop. That's how the reading ended. There was no official end of the text. Whatever, stop, that's enough, and we'll move on with the liturgy. Okay? Yes? I, I've never wondered before, but I wonder now, when was, if there was, it probably was, a day of rest for the Romans? We know, we know it was a Sabbath for the Jews. And, and my first guess at why before dawn was, well, it's a work day. That's well, not why the Christians were meeting on that day. That's not why the Christians were meeting no, on that day. No, I know, I know they're not meeting because it's yeah. a work day, but do you know? Or That's a good question. Is I just know that the, uh, you know, the Romans were kind of the rulers of the, of the world at that time. They had about almost 180 holidays. 
So right. I don't think they really needed it. They were brass down right. slaves, and you know they 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 worked people, other people to death. But the Romans didn't have. I mean, every day was a work day for slaves, and every day was a holiday for the Romans. <laughs> Uh, that's, I'm not quite. Yeah, sure. I don't know. That's a good. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. On the day we call the day of the sun, all who dwell in the city are gathered in the same place. In the, in the memoirs, of the apostles are read. When the reader is finished, he who presides over those gathered uh, admonishes and challenges them to imitate these beautiful things. The homily or sermon. Then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves intercessions, and for all others, wherever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions, and faithful to the commandments, so as to obtain eternal salvation. When the prayers are concluded, we exchange the kiss. Sign of peace. Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him who presides over the brethren. The priest. Water and wine. Right? He has wine. He adds a little water to it. This is in 150. This is amazing. He takes them and offers praise and glory to the Father of the universe through the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And for a considerable time, he gives thanks. Eucharist in the Greek. He offers the Eucharist. That we may have, have been judged worthy of these gifts. When he has concluded the prayers and thanksgivings in the Eucharist, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying... Amen. At the end of the Eucharistic prayer. When he who resides is given thanks and the people have responded, those whom we call deacons give to those present the Eucharistic bread, the Thanksgiving bread, wine and water, and take them to those who are absent. Okay? Taking the Eucharist to the sick. That's pretty explicit that early. The Eucharisted bread? The Eucharisted bread. The, That's an interesting yeah. phrase. Yeah, the Thanksgiving bread, the bread that had been made in Thanksgiving. Okay? Did that mean consecrated? Yes, yes. At this time, the liturgy was quite simple. Okay, it wasn't a grand ceremony with a choir singing and polyphony and so forth and so on. It wasn't a long event. By all, by the evidence we have, this kind of thing, it seems quite short, very simple. In fact, in the Roman liturgy, is quite simple and short. Yes. Was it, was it a Jewish custom to, to give thanks to God and go for it? Absolutely. Yes. This is. These are all customs coming, you know, from their Jewish background. In fact, something I meant to mention. A particular phrase that we we often hear in the Mass, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where does that come from? It's not in the Mass. Where does it come from in, in the history of the, of the Christians or memory? It's found first in the Psalms. Okay, and it was used during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was used as the feast for the enthronement of the king. Some of you have done a few other studies with me, and remember that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where else in the scriptures do we see that phrase repeated? Yeah, when our Lord comes into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, right, like Solomon of old, comes into Jerusalem as to be anointed king, to be enthroned upon the cross, and the people chant, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were, they were giving acclamation to him as king. Our Lord also
also says in Matthew, I believe, chapter 23, okay, and in the other synoptic gospels, he says, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as a Christian in the early church, what would you do when you came together for the Eucharist asking your Lord to be present among you? You would remember those words, wouldn't you? And in fact, that phrase is found throughout the liturgies of the church, not just in the Roman liturgy, but also in the East. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, just before the Eucharistic prayer, when our Lord makes himself present upon the altar. Okay? So these phrases, these prayers that were used, and even the framework for the liturgy in the early church was something was not invented by the apostles or even invented by our Lord. It was something found in the synagogues of the Jews, in the festival days, in the temple. These are things borrowed from the Jews and brought together and made sensible in Christ. Okay? As I said, the liturgy was quite simple in the early days, and there was a practical reason for that, something that changed around 300. And what was that great event in the history of the church? Yeah, the conversion of Constantine and the legalization of Christianity. Many people make the mistake of looking upon the early church and any little evidence we have from the first couple hundred years, and they think... That's Christianity in its truest and pure form. The evidence we have 2,000 years later of what they were doing in the first few days of the church. And that's nonsense. Because as you know, you don't do what you like to do when somebody's chasing you down with a gun. Not they were chasing down with a gun then, but if they were chasing us down with a gun, you wouldn't be wearing necklaces and getting all dressed up and going out and enjoying yourself at the church at night, would you? No. You'd be hiding out working for your life, trying to save your life. And that's exactly what happened. When Constantine uh, tolerated Christianity and eventually made it legal, suddenly the church underwent what might be considered, um, what maybe to a non-believer is a massive change, but to a believer is simply the blossoming of the faith. The church was in bud form. It was growing, but it was growing under persecution. It was being beaten down. And when it was given freedom, it did what it wanted to do. Okay, Immediately, you start to see a liturgy which becomes highly developed. Okay, Very ornate. Uh, glorious vestments being used and such things like that. Michael Davies, who's a... Um, really a great historian of the liturgy who just died recently, unfortunately, of cancer. He says in his, in his small book, History of the Liturgy, the toleration of Christianity under Constantine and its adoption as the religion of the empire under Theodosius had a dramatic effect on the development of ritual. Congregations increased in size and benefactions for the building and furnishing of the churches resulted in the enrichment of vessels and vestments. Those presenting such gifts would naturally want them to be of the richest and most beautiful nature possible. In a parallel and natural development, the liturgical rites became more elaborate, with solemn processions and stress upon the awesome nature of the rite. This elaboration of the liturgy proceeded faster and further in the East and in the West during the 4th century. Why would that be? Why in the 4th century in the West would, even though with the allowance of Christianity, still things didn't flourish as they may have in the East. Less control, wouldn't it? Because the East 
That's true. And why wasn't it flourishing in the West? For a very practical reason. Barbarians. Exactly. The barbarians were invading the West, and Rome, for all practical purposes, had fallen in the West. Okay? And so even though the flourishing does take place in the West, it's not quite as elaborate as it is in the East, in the Christian East. From where is that quotation? From which Bible? History of the Roman Rite. Did Constantine? Uh, his edict of toleration is like 321, I think. Something like 313. 313. Edict of toleration and then the legalization or something happens at 321. Council of Nicaea is 325. All right. Uh, but the universal change in style was initiated throughout the Christian world by the change from an illegal and private ritual into a state-supported public one. Okay. Early Christianity was kind of bunker or foxhole Christianity. They're all tied down. Okay, they're down there for the fight. Okay, and when the allowance is given for Christianity to flourish, it does what it wants to do, and that is simply give glory to God. Okay, and so when in the excavations of the ancient churches, you see this. It, it wasn't as though, you know, for a thousand years or 1,500 years, you had one vestment in the church and, you know, a little uh, uh, clay vessel to concentrate. No. Gold and jewels were used. The finest things were used. Okay? You, uh, there's one account of an excavation of a church that when they... When they um, when they exposed what was inside, there were it was like something like twenty to thirty chalices, and this was in a backwater town. Okay, the people would give of their own for the glory of God. Okay. Also, before Constantine, books were quite scarce. Okay, among the Christians, you didn't have a highly developed liturgy written down. As soon as Constantine makes the allowance for Christianity, suddenly we get evidence of the writing down of the prayers which had been handed on from memory. Right? If you're hiding in persecution, you're not going to be hauled around the library with you. Okay? So it's right at about that time, the 4th century, 5th century, that we get the first sacramentaries. We get evidence of the first sacramentaries. Okay? Giving the text to us of the liturgy. Finally, in the 6th century, who comes along? What great man in the history of the church? Yeah, Pope Gregory the Great. Pope Gregory the Great was, had a great influence on the liturgy. Okay? His influence was not in writing a new liturgy or making up a liturgy, but by simply, in some sense, codifying what he, what he received. And what did he receive? By our evidence, he probably received manuscripts which were quite uh, diverse. Okay? A liturgy which had still was still very fluid. Okay, many options within it of what to do. Okay, why? I remember the bishop in my hometown when I grew up doing this. Now I move to this town, and the bishop in my home does this slightly different. Okay, he in a sense collected these things from the from uh, in the church in Rome. Okay, and promulgated what we know as the liturgy of Pope Gregory the Great. Okay. 
even the, the liturgy of Pope Gregory the Great we, is not made explicit. We don't know every detail about it. He did make some changes to the liturgy. Not changes in the sense that he changed what he received, but in the sense that he added what his own experience was. Okay? What are some of those things? What's that? Music. Yeah, well, music is, is an area where he definitely had an influence. Okay? He, reducts, he reduced the variable prayers of the liturgy to three. Okay, what would be called the collect, the secret, and the post-communion? The Gregorian chant, yes, when we say Gregorian chant, we're referring to Pope Gregory the Great. He reduced the variations within the canon. That was probably his most significant influence. That the canon of the Mass, the Eucharistic prayer, was in a sense solidified by Pope Gregory the Great and underwent virtually no change that we can detect. Okay, all the way up to the 60s. Okay, for the, all that history of Christianity. He's the last one to be known to have touched it. He introduced the Kyrie. And he introduced the Pater Noster or the Our Father into the liturgy. You can imagine, right? He's familiar with the sacred scriptures. He knows the prayer that our Lord gave. It was probably used in his own experience. And he made it more of an official text in the liturgy. Okay, being Pope. He has great influence upon those around him. Did you say he did introduce the Kyrie? Did you yes. say the obvious study? No. No, okay. And the Father. read my mind, though, because I was about to say that. Oh, well. <laughs> and the, the Lord's Prayer. And what? Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer. No. That's right. You mean up until that time we have no evidence that the Lord's Prayer was part of Mass? Yeah, not consistently, no. Okay. And again, when I say that he introduced it in the liturgy, it's not as though he stood upon his chair in St. Peter's and said, every Christian in my realm will follow this. It was his practice and his liturgy, which is attributed to him, became very influential in the West. It wasn't as we expect it today, where the Pope declares something over the internet, okay, or on TV. It didn't happen in that way, okay? In the late 600s, the Agnus Dei was introduced. Okay, which until about 800 is the only change which takes place between Pope Gregory the Great and another great event which happens in 800. Okay, and the Agnus, so the Agnus Dei comes to be used in the liturgy. Okay, we already had evidence uh, of that uh, in the memory of the church in the book of Revelation. Okay, and in fact, all the way back to the edge of the Jordan River when our Lord was identified as the Lamb of God. Okay, what great event happens in 800 in the church? Charlemagne. Charlemagne is crowned Holy Roman Emperor. And why is this so important? Because with Charlemagne comes a unification of not all of the West, but a great portion of the West. He becomes emperor, in a sense, of the West, emperor of the Romans, the Holy Roman Emperor. Charlemagne had an interest in unifying his, uh, his people. And one of the ways you unify a people is that you want them to pray together. Okay? He had a scholar in his court named Altwin. He was a monk scholar. And... Charlemagne requested that the Pope send him a copy of the liturgy which was celebrated in Rome, in the city of Rome. 
Okay, to this point, uh, things the liturgy was celebrated slightly different wherever you went. Okay, the core of the liturgy was the same. But the way of expression of that liturgy is different. As some of you have been to my parish at Holy Transfiguration, you'll know that. We're very much Catholic. We share those things in common. In fact, the liturgy itself has the core elements that, you're, that the Roman Church here has. Okay? But the way of expression of ceremony is slightly different. And in fact, to give a good sense of that, I had a quotation I didn't read you. And I think it's helpful if you give me a chance to find it because I skipped it. The letter of, um, of Pope Gregory to St. Augustine of Canterbury. And I give you a sense of how the liturgy was respected and how it came to have variation within it from place to place. Pope Gregory says, My brother, you are familiar with the usage of the Roman Church in which you were brought up. But if you have found customs, whether in the Church of Rome or of Gaul or any other that may be more acceptable to God, I wish you to make a careful selection of them and to teach the Church of the English, which is still young in the faith, whatever you have been able to learn with profit from the various churches. Select from each of the churches whatever things are devout, religious, and right. And whenever you have bound them, as it were, into a sheep, let the minds of the English grow accustomed to it. And you, it's a very beautiful thing. He receives the liturgy, and the Pope says, yet when you come to this people, if there, if there are customs which would give even greater glory to God, don't be afraid to use those things. Okay, as I was preparing today, I was kind of thinking it's like a diamond with jewels set around it. The diamond never changes. In a sense, it's incorruptible. It's the core. But by surrounding it with emeralds or other jewels, you don't take away from the diamond, but you give even greater glory to it. Okay, And that was the principle in practice in the early church. When the Pope sent uh, Alcuin and Charlemagne the text, what did he send them? Unfortunately, he didn't send them everything he was supposed to send them. He simply sent them the pontifical usage in Rome, the liturgy that the Pope himself used, and left out all of those parts which were common that every priest would have used. He simply sent them the parts proper for the Pope. In those days, they didn't have what's, what you might call as a missile. It has every little thing in it, and you can turn there, and you're fine. Not at all. Each person in the church had his own proper parts. The choir had their proper part. The deacon had their proper part. The priest and the bishop all had their proper parts. And each one of them had their own text in front of them. If you come to an Eastern church today, that practice is still in place. When the priest is standing at the altar, he doesn't have the deacon's prayers with him. The deacon has his proper prayers in a separate book. The Pope simply sent Charlemagne the prayers proper for the Pope. So what's he going to do if he wants to promulgate the Roman liturgy for all of his people? What's he going to do? By all evidence we have, Alcuin, his scholar, collected the prayers that he knew from local usage among the Franks. Okay? The tradition that they had received from the Roman of certain prayers, and he tacked them on, he appended them to the text that was sent by the Pope. 
Okay? He didn't take and insert them right into the text. He simply took enough of the prayers to, to finish the text and put them on the end. Okay? Not to confuse what he had received from the Pope from his own scholarship. In fact, he took what he had received from the Pope as most sacred. Okay? I have a quote for you guys um, from Alcuin himself. Happens to be found in Alcuin Reed's book. <laughs> Another Alcuin. I think he took the guy's name when he was ordained a deacon. This is a little text that this monk put in between the liturgy which he had received from Rome and the liturgy which he and the additions which he himself made. The aforesaid sacramentary, the one he received, although marred by many copious errors, so what he had received, he figures actually had some errors and some mistakes, could not be reckoned to be in the condition in which it had left its author's hand. So it was our task to correct and restore it to the best of our bent, for the benefit of all. Let a careful reader examine it, and he will promptly agree with his judgment, unless the work again be corrupted by scribes. But since there are other materials which the Holy Church necessarily uses, and which the aforesaid Father Gregory, seeing that they had been already put forth by others, left aside, we have thought it worthwhile to gather them like spring flowers of the meadows. So he's saying, since the Pope didn't send these things to me, I had to gather them from the tradition of the church and, atta and attach them. I collected them together and placed them in this book apart, but corrected and amended and headed with their own titles, so that the reader may find in this work all things which we have thought necessary for our times, although we have found a great many other embod others embodied in other sacramentaries. But for the purpose of separation, we have placed this little preface, what he's writing right here, in the middle, so that it may form the close of one book and the beginning of another, to the intent that one book, being before the preface and the other after it, everyone may know what was put forth by Blessed Gregory and what by other fathers. He goes on to say, if anyone has a problem with the work I've done, just simply stick to the, to the text we received from Pope Gregory. That's the tradition. Okay? So in effect, what, what happened? The liturgy which was proper to the city of Rome, to the Pope himself, which Charlemagne wanted to spread through his kingdom, became influenced by the liturgy which was taking place in Gaul. Okay? Eventually, that separation between the texts kind of fell out of fell out of there, and what spread through the empire was somewhat of a mixture of the Roman liturgy and certain prayers proper to the church in Gaul. Okay? One of those prayers, the Gloria. Prior to Charlemagne, the Gloria was not present in the Roman liturgy. Okay? As this liturgy was promulgated and spread throughout the kingdom, it eventually made its way back to Rome and influenced the liturgy in Rome itself. Okay? So what had been received from the Pope to Charlemagne ended up coming all the way back and having a reverse impact on the liturgy in the city of Rome itself. <clears throat> Father Adrian Fortescue, who's a... Um, also another great liturgist is dead now. He's writing this, I think, in 19... I mean, published in 1905. 
says, all later modifications, speaking about the modifications that took place to this promulgation through Charlemagne, all later modifications were fitted into the old arrangement, and the most important parts were not touched at all. From roughly the time of St. Gregory the Great, we have the text of the Mass in its order and arrangement as a sacred tradition that no one ventured to touch except in unimportant details. Okay, so certain things were added, like those, and I say those jewels around the diamond. Okay, certain masses were added, propers for particular saints of an area. Okay, but the liturgy itself, as it was received from Pope Gregory the Great, was not changed. Another influence in the spread of the Roman liturgy was the advent of the Benedictine monasteries, which took the liturgy as it was in Rome, as its proper liturgy, and it went out and evangelized what we would call modern-day Europe. Okay, And with that spreading of the Benedictines, the Roman liturgy spread and became influential. In the eighth and ninth, by the 8th and 9th centuries, certain embellishments were brought into the liturgy. Okay? Probably through this promulgation from Charlemagne. Certain practices, you can imagine that one man visiting another diocese, seeing something very beautiful take place in liturgy, would take that home. Okay? And that which was, would be a greater honor to God, is, as Pope Gregory writing to Augustine of Canterbury said, was added into the liturgy in order to make it ever more glorious and beautiful for the honor of God. So by the, in the 8th and 9th centuries, and, and further we get the addition of the prayers at the foot of the altar, the Gloria, the Creed is, is brought in probably around the 11th century. The Creed was brought in as, as uh, part of the liturgy in the West because a heresy was taking place, a Christological heresy was taking place in Spain. And they began to use the Creed, or a version of the Creed, in the liturgy itself to combat that heresy. That practice spread, an honorable practice, spread throughout the West. Initially, the Pope said, no, 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 not allowed to do that. And eventually, it was allowed into the Roman liturgy itself. The offertory prayers were added okay, in the Middle Ages. And also the last gospel. What's the last gospel? That's right. The beginning, yeah, the first, the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so on. You remember, some of you remember that from your childhood. Every single Mass, at the end of that Mass, that text was read. Okay? That was added in the Middle Ages. The most significant addition that was made was the introduction of the Low Mass. Okay, some of you remember the Low Mass. I want to read you a maybe a little bit too extensive of a quote, but I'll err on that side from Father Fortescue because I think it's helpful. It says, We have now arrived at the early Middle Ages. From this time forward, there is little to chronicle of the nature of the change in the order of the Mass itself. That has now become a sacred and inviolable inheritance, its origin forgotten. It will be popularly believed to date unchanged from the apostles or to have been written by St. Peter himself. But there are developments of another kind to notice as the Roman liturgy entered into the sole possession of the West. The manner of using it adapted itself to the times and then came the later derived rites. 
the evolution of what we call low mass is, mo is the most important modification. The great simplicity of low mass might lead people to think it the primitive form. On the contrary, it is a late abridgment. All that we have considered so far concerns high mass. That is to say, the early development brings us straight to our high mass. From the beginning, we always heard of the Holy Liturgy celebrated with deacons, assistants, and in the presence of people who cry out and later sing their parts. And still, high mass with deacon, subdeacon, and a choir is the normal service. It is high mass that is supposed throughout the ritual. Low mass is a curtailed substitute in which the celebrant himself supplies, often awkwardly, the part of the absent ministers when they cannot be had. Its arrangement throughout can be understood by reference to the high mass. Low mass became necessary when celebrations were so multiplied that every priest said mass once a day. In the early church, they celebrated mass when? On Sunday, the proper day for the liturgy to be celebrated, the divine liturgy to be celebrated. Throughout the rest of the week, the psalms were chanted. Okay? Over time, daily mass became common practice. And further along in time, the multiplication of daily masses became also common, to the point when a priest might celebrate mass three and four times a day. Why? A certain theology which says that because the Mass has a specific value to it, each Mass has a value before God. Therefore, two Masses is greater than one. Okay, forget how much my involvement in the liturgy takes place. It's simply the practice of doing it over and over and over again that counts. Okay? A certain, there's something certainly true about the value of every Mass, but also something left out in the theology there. Okay? He goes on to say that Pope Leo III in the 800s sometimes was said to celebrate as often as nine times in one day the sacred liturgy. Can you imagine celebrating Mass nine times in a day? You wouldn't have time to sing it, that's for sure. Incense? No way. Could you find a deacon? Probably not. It's that hardcore to celebrate how many times with you. Who or and where so this, who, who or where was this going? This Pope Leo the Third in the eight hundreds. But it gives oh, this was yeah, but it gives a it gives a uh, you know an idea of what was what was going on in the day. Yeah. It may be an interest to know that I read that Henry V before the Battle of Agincourt in fourteen fifteen heard mass three times in succession. Oh, really? there you go. And in fact, uh, a priest is even allowed today to say mass three times on what day? Sunday. Now no, there's a little Christmas. No, the feast of all souls. I have to attend a mass in Rome, and uh, the priest is a good good priest. And some of the people there in our class were uh, didn't really know the traditional mass, but the priest loved the traditional mass. So we went. He said a mass, the traditional mass at the altar, uh, facing the cross. I served for him. He finished the Mass, he genuflected, he turned to the other altar, said the new Mass. I walked off and a new server came in. Then at the end of that one, he genuflected, came back, and I joined him again, he said a third Mass. Okay, so it happens. Priest is still allowed to say three Masses on Christmas. Yes, on Christmas. And I think on Pascha too, on Easter? Right? No? Okay. And then the military. Yeah, you're right, it's only one Mass. You're right, you're right. Okay. Is there a time period when, uh, when the... Uh, uh, more than one, a mass more than once a day becomes uh, through uh, 
a common practice? Is there it's not clear. It's like a date when the thing's promulgated. You can do this, but I mean, probably six, seven hundreds, it became more common. Okay. By the eight, nine hundreds, definitely some abuses had crept in. I read that the father of, of uh, Joseph Rotzinger uh, attended every Sunday for three months, one for the other. Very possible. Every Sunday. So, what's my point? The private masses began to be in, very influential upon the liturgy. Okay? You had certain things which the low mass then uh, imposed itself or influenced itself upon the high mass. Some of you will remember from the old days that while at a high mass, while the deacon chanted the gospel, or just before the deacon chanted the gospel, the priest would walk up to the altar and say the gospel. I don't know if you knew he was doing that or not. But he would go up there and say the gospel, and then the deacon would chant it. Why? Because at low mass, he had to say all the parts. And so eventually the idea became that he still had to say all the parts even though the deacon was there. Okay, and so he said all the parts of the Mass, even though the deacon went and did his parts also. Okay? There's, other than that, there's not a whole lot to say about the development of the liturgy. Even from Pope Gregory the Great, all the way up to the Protestant Revolt. Okay? There wasn't much to say. There's not a lot of influence. We went over a few, a few additions. Okay, what do we say? The Gloria came in, the Creed, the Offertory Prayers in the Last Gospel. But the core structure of the liturgy itself did not change. As Father Fortescue said, it was considered sacred from the apostles themselves, and you do not mess with that which is sacred. Okay? So what happened during the Protestant Revolution? First of all, if someone said... The Reformation was very much an anti-liturgical movement. Okay? I would say it was an anti-sacramental movement. Because at the core of Protestantism is a fundamental divide between God and man. Man is left in his sin, and God is left to make a judgment upon man apart from his internal state. Therefore, the sacraments can really do nothing for you. You are left as you were, a fallen man. Okay? And therefore, the liturgy itself, the sacraments, were very much influenced by Protestantism. Okay? Not in the sense that the Roman church was influenced, but the Protestants started to tinker with the liturgy. Don't think that all of a sudden Luther woke up one day and said, I'm throwing out the Mass, I'm throwing out this, I'm throwing out that, and suddenly I'm going to look like your Methodist minister down the street. Didn't happen like that. Okay? The liturgy continued to be celebrated with very minor changes. And in fact, you can imagine, as the liturgy was throughout the West, different, almost in every diocese, minor differences, really all influenced from Rome through Charlemagne's promulgation of the Mass and the Benedictines, but still, in every city or every diocese you went to, there were minor variations, customs on how to give glory to God. Well, what happens when one guy decides to break with the church, changes his theology about the Eucharist, and decides to take out a prayer here, change a prayer there, change something in the Mass 
over there, do you think your average person would know? No. Initially, the changes were almost imperceptible. And especially because of this diversity of usage throughout the West, it became very difficult to tell whether you were in a Catholic liturgy or not, whether you were in union with Rome or not. What are some of the things that the Protestants threw out? First of all, the prayers at the foot of the altar. They threw out immediately almost all the things that had come about since Gregory the Great. Okay, they refused the idea of organic development, as Gregory the Great himself taught to Augustine of Canterbury. Okay, the prayers at the foot of the altar. Why? Because it talks about a priest ascending the altar. An altar is for sacrifice. And we all know, don't we, that the Mass is not a sacrifice, according to Protestant theology. Don't worry. <laughs> what other things are gotten rid of? The confidior. Why would the confidior be thrown out? You're close. You're, who knows the old, where's the old confidior? Oh, come on. Somebody with gray hair. Confidior de omnipotente, Beata Maria and Semper Virgine, Beata Michelangelo, Beata Juana Batiste, Santi Sepulchris, Petropon, and so on. Now, you guys are all wondering why this guy without gray hair knows them. Actually, I do have a few gray hairs. Um, the invocation of the saints. You can't do that. So get rid of it. Okay? The offertory prayers. Similarly, the offertory prayers are just uh, filled with sacrificial imagery. And so we have to get rid of those things. Anything which is explicitly Catholic must be gotten rid of. Okay? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is almost out of time. What's the big deal? I wrote up here before you walked in, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi. Translate for me. Yeah, the law of prayer is the law of belief, the credo, the belief. Okay? What's that mean? What you pray, you believe. It's an ancient saying of the church. What you pray, you believe. It's true in all religions. Okay? You're not going to say something in your prayer which you don't believe in your heart. Okay? Or I hope you won't. <laughs> okay? And so prayer for the church has always been the expression of her faith received from Jesus Christ. When you start to change what you pray, you suddenly call into question what? What you believe. Okay? You cannot fool with the liturgy because when you start to fool with the liturgy, eventually what you believe begins to change. Okay? St. Thomas Aquinas, quoting Augustine, says, The customs of God's people and the institutions of our ancestors are to be considered laws, and those who throw contempt on the customs of the church ought to be punished as those who disobey the law of God. It's heavy duty, right? Why? Because those people who are throwing contempt upon the customs of the church are in that act questioning what is divinely revealed by God himself. How 
did the church respond to the Protestant Reformation? The Council of Trent was called okay, and dealt with all of those questions about the sacraments that the Protestants were calling into question, which Luther had called himself had called into question. And it also dealt with the liturgy. And it promulgated a text, Quo Prima. We're not going to look at it right now. It's in your handout. Okay, don't look at it right now. It's okay. Because I only got about 30 seconds to get through like 500 years. Okay? What the Council of Trent called for was not a new liturgy to be made up to fight against Protestantism or whatever it is, but simply the restoration of the liturgical books as they were in Rome and the promulgation of those liturgical books for everyone. Why? Because in the West at that time, the multitude of, of differences from one diocese to the other and the minor changes brought in by the Protestants made it as I said before, imperceptible as whether you were in a Catholic liturgy or in a Protestant liturgy. And therefore, the council said, reform the books, make sure they are clean, that they are pristine, that there is no influence in them that should not be there. And then promulgate that for all priests in the West. Pius V did that. Alcuin Reed in his book, Organic Development of the Liturgy, says, The fundamental principle of this reform was indeed one of restoration, but it was not a restoration based on Protestant iconoclast or antiquarian principles, nor was it a reform that sought to innovate. It was a restoration that sought to recover the beauty of the Roman liturgy. The organism was pruned that it might flower again. Okay? One key point in Quo Primum, which is the text which promulgates the Missal of Pius V, is that liturgies which were 200 years old or older ought to be retained. Okay? Why is that important? Because they had a respect for tradition. That which had been handed on, that which was not tainted by Protestantism, ought to be retained because it speaks the language of the faith. And you never tam tamper with that. Okay? It's very important because some people will say, in defense of changing the liturgy, that Pius V introduced his own missile, didn't he? In fact, I just looked up on the internet a, uh, a um, pastor's column. Okay, in fact, I have it right here. I will not tell you what pastor it is. It says, in 1570, the Tridentine Mass was itself something of an innovation. There is just no one around today who can remember longingly what was celebrated before the Council of Trent. It's just factually not true. It was not an innovation. It was simply the restoration of the liturgy as it had been handed down from Pope Gregory the Great, which received it himself from those that came before him. Okay? I want to read you a quote. Can you give me five minutes? Yeah, if you need to go, feel free. You're not going to hurt my feelings or something. I know we're over time. I apologize. A quote from Ratzinger. Okay, when he was, before he was pope. Pius V had simply ordered a reworking of the Missale Romanum, then being used, which is the normal thing as history develops over the course of centuries. 
Many of his successors had likewise reworked this missile again, but without ever setting one missile against another. It was a continual process of growth and purification, in which continuity was never destroyed. There is no such thing as a missile of Pius V, created by Pius V himself. There is only the reworking done by Pius V as one phase in a long history of growth. The new feature that came to the fore after the Council of Trent was of a different nature. The eruption of the Reformation had above all taken the concrete form of liturgical reforms. In quotes, reforms. It was not just a matter of there being a Catholic church and a Protestant church alongside one another. The split in the church occurred almost imperceptibly and found its most visible and historically most incisive manifestation in the changes of the liturgy. These changes in turn took very different forms at the local level, so that here too one frequently could not ascertain the boundary between what was still Catholic and what was no longer Catholic. In this confusing situation which had become possible by the failure to produce unified liturgical legislation and by the existing liturgical pluralism inherited from the Middle Ages, the Pope decided that now the Missale Romanum, the Missal of the City of Rome, was to be introduced as reliably Catholic in every place that could not demonstrate its liturgy to be at least 200 years old. Wherever the existing liturgy was that old, it could be preserved because its Catholic character would then be assured. In this case, we cannot speak of the prohibition of a previous missal that had formerly been approved as valid. Pope St. Pius V was simply handing on what he had received. From the time of Pope St. Pius V, to the time of the Second Vatican Council, again, there is not a whole lot to say. There's very minor changes in the liturgy, mostly restorations of things which had crept in over time, saying, no, you must do it as Pius V had said, as he had promulgated. Okay? Some of you will remember in the 50s, Pius XII reforming Holy Week. Okay, one of those reforms that Pius XII introduced was the restoration of the Easter Vigil. The Easter Vigil had crept back and back and back until it was celebrated on Saturday morning. Okay, if you come to my church, it's still celebrated on Saturday morning. Okay, the, pro the, the reforms of Pius XII were not about the Melchite liturgy, about the Roman liturgy itself, and so it's still that way. Okay, but again, nothing fundamental was changed to the structure of the liturgy. The diamond remained in place. And what was added was for the beauty of the liturgy itself. The Pope's always taking care to trim where things became, in a sense, foggy. If the liturgy itself in an area wasn't speaking the faith clearly, the Pope's would trim it. A little here and a little there. So that the people that attended the liturgy were catechized according to the faith which was Catholic. Okay? Um, I have to conclude. So here's how I'm going to conclude. I'm going to tell you that we're going to take a break. And anyone who needs to leave can leave. Don't feel bad. What I want to do is I copied this off and I don't want to waste it. Okay? I just want to spend a few minutes looking at some of the text, quo primum, and eventually the motu proprio itself, since I promised you guys I would look at that a little bit. 
Um, so if you want to take a 60-second, two-minute break, people that need to leave feel free. What we'll do is spend about 15 minutes, a half an hour, going through some of these texts, okay?
and get home, but I'd rather get there faster if anyone offers me a ride. Where are you going? Where are you going? Okay, yes. Uh, in the area of the cathedral, the Catholic, Roman Catholic Cathedral of the Art of the Diocese of Arlington. All right, there you go. Thank you. Good. Now, uh, I gave you guys have two handouts. 
One is full premium, the other one is another little piece of paper that, uh, well you should have two. There's one which is stapled and one which is alone because I forgot to put it in the staple group. If you don't have it, it's here. You can hand it out. We're out. If you don't have it, look on with the neighbor. I just lost my notes. Okay. What I want to do now is just simply look at a couple of things, uh, and we're going to quickly move to the monoproprio itself to look at a couple of key points. But um, the first thing that's not stable there that you have is a quotation from Ratzinger's book, Milestones, which I read you the center of already. But I want to read you the other parts of it because it's extremely important solidifying our mind, in our minds the development of the liturgy and why the Pope has done what he has done. He himself lived through the years, as many of you did, of the changes of the liturgy uh, after Vatican II. Okay, and it's our goal to kind of get our mind around his vision. If we can get our mind around his vision, we have a lot better understanding of why the man is doing what he's doing. Okay? I, I was thinking today that in the past, I don't know, six months or a year, why isn't the Pope doing what he wrote about? Because I used to read his stuff all the time before he became Pope. And I said, what's he going to add? What's he going to add? And so, and then... He finally released the motu proprio, and suddenly all those things which I had read are in there. In little phrases, they're all there. Okay? So just, we'll read this together. Uh, this one that's not stapled that you have. Yes? I don't know, I was thinking that, but I, maybe not, I don't know. It's a little bit of a stretch. We can talk about that later. <laughs> All right. The second great event at the beginning of my years in Regensburg was the publication of the Missal of Paul VI, which was accompanied, you guys all with me? Yes? Which was accompanied by the almost total prohibition after a transitional phase of only half a year of using the missile we had until then, we had until then. I welcomed the fact that now we had a binding liturgical text after a period of experimentation that had often deformed the liturgy. It was the years between the end of the council and 1970. If you remember in 65, there was a new missile promulgated and things like that. Okay. <coughs> But I was dismayed by the prohibition of the old missile, since nothing of the sort had ever happened in the entire history of the liturgy. The impression was given, was even given, that what was happening was quite normal. The previous missile had been created by Pius V in 1570 in connection with the Council of Trent. He's, he's saying what the common idea was, okay? And so it was quite normal that after 400 years in a new council, a new pope would present us with a new missile. Right? That's what the quotation I was reading from that priest. Okay? But the historical truth of the matter is different. Pius V had simply ordered a reworking of the Missale Romanum, then being used, which is the normal thing as history develops over the course of centuries. Many of his successors have likewise reworked this missile again, but without ever setting one missile against another. 
It was a continual process of growth and purification in which the continuity was never destroyed. There is no such thing as a missile of Pius V created by Pius V himself. There is only the reworking done by Pius V as one phase in a long history of growth. I read that to you, right? Earlier. And it goes on. He talks about... Um, yeah, the new feature that came before after the Council of Trent was of a different nature, the eruption of the Reformation, and so on. Okay, he says that the liturgies became imperceptible, right? And so they needed the liturgy of Rome to be promulgated. If you skip down to the next paragraph, in this confusing situation where there's all these liturgies going on, okay, and then scan down with me about two sentences to wherever the existing liturgy. You see that? Yeah. About two or three sentences down, about five to ten or five to eight lines down. Wherever the existing liturgy was that old, that's 200 years old or older, it could be preserved because its Catholic character would then be assured. In this case, we cannot speak of the prohibition of a previous missile that had formerly been approved as valid. The prohibition of the missile that was now decreed, a missile that had known continuous growth over the centuries, starting with the sacramentaries of the ancient church, introduced a breach into history of the liturgies whose consequences could only be tragic. It was reasonable and right of the council to order revision of the missile such had often taken place before, and which this time had to be more thorough than before, above all because the introduction of the vernacular. He's talking about the, the, the revision after Vatican II. Okay? But more than this now happened. This is after Vatican II. But more than this now happened. The old building was demolished, and another was built. To be sure, largely using materials from the previous one and even using the old building plans. There is no doubt that this new missile, in many respects, brought with it a real improvement and enrichment. But setting it as a new construction over and against what had grown historically, forbidding the results of this historical growth, thereby makes the liturgy appear to be no longer a living development, but the product of erudite work and juridical authority. This has caused us enormous harm. For then the impression had to emerge that the liturgy is something made, not something given in advance, but something lying within our own power of decision. From this it also follows that we are not to recognize the scholars and central authority alone as decision makers, but that in the end each and every community must provide itself with its own liturgy. When liturgy is self-made, however, then it can no longer give us what, it, what its proper gift should be, the encounter with the mystery that is not our own product, but rather our origin and source of our life. A renewal of liturgical awareness, a liturgical reconciliation that again recognizes the unity of the history of the liturgy, and that understands Vatican II, not as a breach, but as a stage of development. These things are urgently needed for the life of the church. I am convinced that the crisis in the church that we are experiencing today is to a large extent due to the disintegration of the liturgy, which at times has even come to be conceived of etsi deus non daritur, in that it is a matter of indifference whether or not God exists and whether or not he speaks to us and hears us. Notice, he says, the problem in the church today, the real crisis taking place, is at root a liturgical crisis, but has given birth to or flowered into what? A theological crisis in that it doesn't matter whether God exists or not. Lex Arande, Lex Credendi. 
But when the community of faith, the worldwide unity of the church and our history and the mystery of the living Christ are no longer visible in the liturgy, we're all sending the church to become visible in our spiritual essence. Then the community is celebrating only itself, an activity that is utterly fruitless. And because the essential community cannot have its origin from itself, but emerges as a unity only from the Lord through faith, such circumstances will inexorably result in a disintegration into sectarian parties of all kinds, partisan opposition within a church, tearing herself apart. This is why we need a new liturgical movement, which will call to life the real heritage of the Second Vatican Council. Okay? I read that to you because I think it captures the Pope's thought. It's amazing what he says, okay, about the, the, the traditional liturgy. He confirms that it is something which has been handed down from the beginning, never invented by a Pope. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, not even a Pope can arbitrarily change the liturgy. Uh, uh, then this guy invented it. Hold on, hold on, take it, take it. Notice also, in response to Norma, that the Pope is very careful in Cardinal Ratzinger with his language. He says that the prohibition of the old missile gave the appearance that the new missile was something completely other. He always speaks of it in that terms, in those terms. He always says that what we need is to realize the teachings of the Second Vatican Council as one step along the whole journey of faith. Okay? But when the liturgy is deformed, when it is imposed, when the old liturgy is cut out and said you cannot do this anymore, in some sense saying that it is harmful, then suddenly we have a problem. Because we call into question the theology which the traditional liturgy, the old liturgy, promulgated, which it gave voice to. Yes? What did the new, um, the Vatican II Council say that the Mass should be like, other than the vernacular, introducing the vernacular, what other changes did it it, it was pretty. It was pretty wide open. It wasn't. It, other than saying that you got to retain Latin and Gregorian chant and things like that, it did say vernacular could be used. Other than that, it simply gave the direction to the liturgists and the theologians. Say, look, a, a reform of the liturgy is in order. Okay, but again, understanding that reform as Pius V had, as Pope Gregory the Great had, as simply uh, you know pruning to make the text more clear, to to show forth more clearly the truth of what we believe. Okay, does that make sense? Absolutely, no, 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 no. That's yeah, no, no, and that's why I mean when. Father Maccabee celebrates the noon mass here. He faces the tabernacle. Okay, no, he celebrated the new mass in Latin. That's you know completely valid, and it's not the old mass. It's just that most people see that it's the most visible part, and they say, ah, the traditional liturgy. Okay, okay. More than that happened. An actual t- change in the text did take place, as the Pope says. The old building was demolished and a new one built, using parts from the old. The old structure, for sure, okay. But the way it was promulgated was very destructive to the faith. And as you know, what happened? Many people began to change their theology, right? Suddenly, you began to hear new things that you didn't know as a child, such that you know Christ isn't really God, or things like that. You see what I'm saying? All right. Norma's got to leave. Feel free, Norma. Go ahead. 
We'll look real quick at um, the document itself, some more of my if you want to stay. Just because I know Marianne's dying to do it. It's, if you keep going, I gave you, just so you know what you have, Quote Primum is the text of Pius V when he promulgated the literature after the Protestant revolt. Okay. The next one is Quantor Abhing Anos, which is an allowance for the traditional mass of Missile Pius V given by John Paul II, a very limited allowance given in 1984. The next one is the further allowance of Cleves and Day by John Paul II in 1988 in response to Archbishop Lefebvre's uh, ordination of some bishops. Okay, I want you guys to have these because these are great documents to have in your, in your uh, hands. And finally, uh, well, then I have the papal explanatory letter for you of Samorum Pontificum. If you're looking on the thing there, you'll see it. Papal explanatory letter to the bishops regarding the apostolic letters Samorum Pontificum. Are you with me? Good. I just want to point out um, a couple things about the letter to the bishops because it's also helpful. Okay. Are you with me? Yes? You're all there? All right. Which page is this now? I don't know. It's like, well, no, it's page three. It's page three. Okay. Page three, you'll see. It's page, the actual piece of paper number three. Piece of paper number three. Papal explanatory letter to the bishops. You see that? All right. Is it fourth page? Sorry about that. If you look down a couple paragraphs, I've marked a little point for you that I think is... Uh, it's a nice little point, and then we'll move on to the, uh, the next thing. As for the use of the 1962 missile, you're with me. As a forma extraordinaria, the extraordinary form of the liturgy of the Mass, I would like to draw attention to the fact that this missile was never juridically abrogated and consequently, in principle, was always permitted. At the time of the introduction of the new missile, it did not seem necessary to issue specific norms for the possible use of the earlier missile, and so on. Okay? Remember, he says in his experience, that earlier thing we read, he says, the other one, in all practical purposes, was cut off the old liturgy. The liturgy celebrated at Vatican II itself by the bishops. Okay? So he says, but... He says, it was never juridically abrogated. In fact, every priest always had the right to say it. Why? Because that liturgy was the ancient liturgy of the church. And when you cut that off, you call into question the very teachings which the church has handed on for 2,000 years. Okay? Turn the page. We're we'll just looking at these other two points. It's, or turn the page in a sense of over to the other side of the bishop's explanatory letter. Because there's two little points there that are extremely important. You see that? It is true. Are you with me? It is true that there have been exaggerations and at times social aspects and unduly linked to the, ad, the attitude of the faithful attached to the ancient Latin liturgical tradition. Your charity and pastoral prudence will be an incentive and guide for improving these. For that matter, the two forms of the usage of the Roman rite can be mutually enriching. New saints and some of the new prefaces can and should be inserted into the old missal. 
the Ecclesia Dei Commission, in contact with various bodies devoted to the youth, and so on and so on, will have power over this. Why is that so important? Because that phrase, that, or that idea, which is, our, which is present in Ratzinger's writings before, opens up the possibility that there can be a reform of the traditional liturgy as envisioned by the Second Vatican Council. It's possible. And he's now opening the door for that revision. Not tearing down the building, but by saying, look, there's some new saints, right? Well, maybe these should be added into the liturgy. Maybe they need their own mass and their own propers. Okay? Particular, some of the prefaces can be used from the new missal that were restorations of ancient prefaces. Other ideas like that opens the door wide for the possibility that finally the liturgy as it entered into the Second Vatican Council, that the Fathers called for a restoration of, can now begin. Okay? If you go down a couple, couple paragraphs, you'll see that next one. There is no contradiction. There is no contradiction between the two editions of the Roman Missal. In the history of the liturgy, there is growth and progress, but no rupture. What earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us too. And it cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful. And so on. Why? Lex orande, lex credendi. Okay? That phrase that he's using there, they, uh, can, cannot all entirely be, suddenly entirely be forbidden or even considered harmful, is something that's found in every single writing he does before becoming a pope. He says, you cannot just make that which was held as most sacred suddenly outlawed. Because when you do it, you call into question the faith itself. Okay? All right. The motto appropriate. Does anybody have comments about that? A couple of points? No? No? All right. The motto proprio itself. How many people have read it? All right. Okay. About half. It was pretty good. I was considering how we go about this. The particular articles, I think you're going to read on your own, they're not of... Uh, um, mind-blowing uh, importance except that it is confirmed that every priest can say the traditional liturgy if he so desires. Okay? It's his right to say it. Um, and so on, things like that. You can read those on your own. But the first, the first part, which is the explanatory part, is, I think, helpful for us. And then maybe we just have some questions if you guys want. Does anybody, does anybody want to read it? Mary Ann, you want to read this? Yeah. Just it's a one page. It's right there. Yeah, go ahead. If you, anybody wants to stop or and comment, feel free. Um, to the present time, has ever been the concern of Supreme Pontiffs. Oh, okay, you know what? I'm going to read a different version of this. Yeah. Uh, is it the I have the other position? Okay. Is it it's yeah. always been the yeah. care? It has been the constant concern of the Supreme Pontiffs. The reason is a translational question is because it has not officially been translated into English yet. The Latin text is the binding text, and they haven't gotten the English. We turn the page to the Apostolic Letters Summorum Pontificum. Yes. Sorry. Okay. It has been a constant concern of the Supreme Pontiffs up to the present to ensure that the Church of Christ offers a worthy worship to the, to the Divine Majesty, to the praise and glory of His name, and to the benefit of all His Holy Church. Can you speak up there? Since time immemorial, it has been necessary, as it is also for the future, to maintain the principle.
must be observed not only to avoid errors, but also to transmit the integrity of the faith, because the church's law of prayer corresponds to her law of faith. Among the pontiffs who showed that who showed that requisite concern, particularly outstanding, is the name of St. Gregory the Great. Notice how now he's going to go ahead and review for us everything we talked about tonight. Okay. Who made every effort to ensure that the new peoples of Europe received both the Catholic faith and the treasures of worship and culture that had been accumulated by the Romans in preceding centuries. Notice he did not invent his own thing, right? He's simply handing on what he received. He commanded that the form of the sacred liturgy as celebrated in Rome concerning both the sacrifice of mass and the divine office be conserved. He took great concern to ensure the dissemination of monks and nuns who following the rule of St. Benedict together with the announcement of the gospel illustrated with their lives the wise provision of their rule that nothing should be, that nothing should be placed before the work of God. In this way, the sacred liturgy celebrated according to the Roman use, enriched not only the faith and piety, but also the culture of many peoples. It is known, in fact, that the Latin liturgy of the church, in its various forms, in each century of the Christian era, has been as first the spiritual life of many saints, has reinforced many peoples in the virtue of religion, and fecundated their piety. <laughs> I love that. Is it that you or something? Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. We had a Many other Roman pontiffs in the course of centuries show particular solicitude in ensuring that the sacred liturgy accomplished this task more effectively. Outstanding among them is St. Pius V, who sustained by great pastoral zeal and following the exhortations of the Council of Trent renewed the entire liturgy of the church, oversaw the publication of liturgical books, amended and renewed in accordance with the norms of the fathers, and provided them for the use of the Latin church. One of the liturgical books of the Roman Rite is the Roman Missal, which developed in the city of Rome, and with the passing of the centuries, little by little took forms very similar to that it has, to that it has had in recent times. It was towards this same goal that succeeding Roman pontiffs directed their energies during the subsequent centuries in order to ensure that the rites and liturgical books were brought up to date and, and when necessary, clarified. From the beginning of this century, they undertook a more general reform. Thus acted also our predecessors, Clement VIII, Urban VIII, St. Pius X, Benedict XV, Pius XII, and Blessed John XXIII. Again, those are all those are all really restorations of the Missal Pius that are clarifying things that had crept in. Okay, except when you get to Pius the Twelfth, then it forms of Holy Week and things like that. In more recent times, the Second Vatican Council expressed expressed a desire that the respectful reverence due to divine worship should be renewed and adapted to the needs of our time. Moved by this desire, our predecessor, the Supreme Pontiff Paul VI, approved in 1970, reformed and partly renewed liturgical books for the Latin Church. Just if anyone's interested, the Latin there on the reformed and partly renewed liturgical books is inseratos et parti innovatos, so partially innovated. Okay, so it's not, when they translate it partly renewed, there really is a sense of the newness there. Partly innovated the liturgy. Go ahead. Reformed and partly renewed liturgical books for that church. Uh, these translated into the various languages of the world were willingly accepted by bishops, priests,
strong and prominent still operating to ensure that this kind of liturgical edifice should again appear resplendent for its dignity and harmony. But in some regions, no small numbers of faithful adhered and continue to adhere with great love and affection to the earlier liturgical forms. These had so deeply marked their culture and their spirit that in 1984, the Supreme Pontiff John Paul II, moved by moved by a concern for the pastoral care of these faithful, with the special indult, Quantor Akinanos, issued by the Congregation for Divine Worship, granted permission to use the Roman Missal published by Blessed John the 23rd in the year 1962. Okay, you guys have that in your packet. Later, in the year 1988, John Paul II, with the apostolic letter given to Proprio Ecclesia Dei, exhorted bishops to make generous use of this power in favor of all the faithful who so desired. Okay, that's awesome. Our predecessor, John Paul II, having already considered the insistent petitions of these faithful, having listened to the views of the Cardinal Fathers of the Consistory the 22nd of March. That, you know what, that paragraph there gets a little confusing. I agree. So I'll read it to you. It, it, with the, the, the way the Latin reads is a little clearer. I won't read it to you in Latin, don't worry. I'm not that good. Our predecessor, John Paul II, having already considered the insistent petitions of these faithful, we meaning himself, having listened to the views of the Cardinal Fathers of the Consistory of, of the 22nd March 2006, we, having reflected deeply upon all aspects of the question, invoked the Holy Spirit and entrusting in the help of God with this apostolic letter, decree the following. So you notice how he walks us through all of liturgical history from the beginning all the way up to the present and explains the very reason why he's going to do this. I was talking to a priest today saying this document is probably going to be the most influential document, not tomorrow, but over the next 50 years to your average Catholic because it restores to the church the liturgy, the possibility of the celebration of the liturgy as it was prior to the reforms which followed the Second Vatican Council and experience the faith when they walk into the church, not tomorrow again, but in the long term, it's going to be influenced by this text. So among all the many things the Pope could do, this is a major, it's a huge step, and it, that's why it's important to study it. All right. The, rest, the articles which follow are just particular um, points that, that explain what he wants to do about allowing the priest to celebrate the traditional Mass. Okay? We're way over time, so um, why don't we call it good there, and if anyone wants to ask questions or whatever, we can still talk, but um, thank you all for coming, and next week, here's what we're going to do, is we have in our calendar, what am I doing next week? No, well, Tuesday's the catechism, but on Thursday, we're coming back for the traditional Mass, and we're going to talk about the Trinity Mass itself in its structure and format. One lady said to me, yeah, but I remember it from my childhood. Trust me, there's always more to learn. And second of all, on the following Thursday, then, we'll, we'll get the text out itself and work through it to remind ourselves of how to actually use the thing. Because it's a little more complicated and involved than the Mass we're used to. Okay, we'll prepare ourselves for that. So why don't we conclude in prayer? Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, the world of our enemy. Pope St. Gregory the Great, pray for us. Pope St. Pius V, pray for us. Blessed John the 23rd, pray for us. And my Father, St.
And there's a hundred other folks that can vote in this event.